0: So Luke chapter one, verses 26 to 38. So I want to um, just ask us once again, as we wrap up our time in Advent, what are you waiting for? Advent is a time of waiting, and that's the question we've been asking during this Advent season. We've spent these past weeks of Advent in the book of Habakkuk, allowing that prophet to retool and to refashion what we're waiting for. Habakkuk taught us to wait for justice, to wait for salvation, to wait for the world to be made right. And he's taught us that waiting involves faith, the kind of faith that trusts God when we can't see what God's doing, we can't feel God's presence, the kind of faith that humbly acknowledges that God's ways are often mysterious and inexplicable and even baffling. And we have seen that what we're waiting for is going to come, us through, come to us through the reign of a king. That wasn't explicit in Habakkuk, but it's something we've been reminding us, ourselves of week by week in the services and as we've been lighting the Advent candle. So what we're waiting for is going to come to us through a king whom God would send. A king who would bring justice, a king who would bring salvation, who would make things right for God's people, and in fact, for all people uh, around the world. Well, it's almost Christmas now. The waiting in that sense is almost over. And so we're getting ready to celebrate the birth of this king. But if we can see Christmas clearly... If we can clear away all of the hallmark sentimentality and the Amazon Prime clutter, we are reminded that after all that waiting, when the king we're waiting for finally comes, he's nothing like we expect. He's a royal surprise. And in fact, what he accomplishes ushers in a new season of waiting, a new season of mystery, a new season of bafflement one that we live in now. If we can see Christmas clearly, we're reminded that we live in this new season and we continue to wait for our King to come again. And so for the next 15 or 20 minutes, I want to invite you into the Christmas story to see how that story sets us up for this new season of waiting and continued surprises, which is why the book, or books like Habakkuk continue, uh, with all their waiting and longing, continue to be relevant to us today. Today we look at the part of the Christmas story where an angel appears to Mary, the soon-to-be mother of the king, and it starts promisingly enough in Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel describes to Mary, the the king's mother, when, when the angel arrives, what kind of king her son that she's going to give birth to will be. And so first, the angel tells Mary in our passage that her baby will grow up to be great. Great. Let's think about those who are considered great. Mary lived in a time when Alexander the Great was still a recent memory. Alexander was a guy who had conquered the known world by the time he was 30 years old. He almost single-handedly spread Greek ideas and culture throughout the world of his day to the extent that that legacy still lasts for us today. No wonder they called him Alexander the Great. Then there was Caesar Augustus. He was the current emperor when the angel announced uh, Christ's birth to Mary. And this Caesar was great. He was emperor of the Western world, author of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, so-called. Augustus was so great that they commonly referred to him at that time as the divine savior who has brought peace to the world. Well, the angel tells Mary that likewise her son will grow up to be great. Second, the angel tells Mary that her son will be called son of the Most High. Most High, of course, is another way of referring to God. And son of the Most High, or son of God, was a title historically given to Hebrew kings, if you read the Old Testament. For example, in 2 Samuel 7.14, God promises King David there that he would have a son to be the future king of Israel. And God said, I will be his father, and he will be my son. To be God's son, son of the Most High, for the Hebrew people meant to be the one that God anointed and approved to be the king from David's line over God's people Israel. Of course, later Christians came to see even more in that title, son of God, as uh, Lucy Shaw's poem so well explored and reflected on. We we've come to realize it's much more than a royal title. Mary's son would, in a very real sense, have God as his father and be God's son. Talk about great. Third, the angel promises Mary that God would give Mary's son the throne of his father, David. Here again is the kingship theme. If we know the biblical story line, this is what we've been waiting for, right? For someone from David's lineage— To once again occupy the throne of David's line as God promised David. And that throne had tragically sat empty for far too many years. And so we're waiting for a new king to arise and to set his people free and to bring justice and to bring salvation. And now the angel announces that this child is going to sit on that throne. Finally, fourth, the angel promises Mary that her son will reign over Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, forever. That his kingdom will never end. Forever. Never end. That's a mighty long time. That is a strong, stable, enduring kingdom. Again, all of this is the fulfillment of what we've been waiting for. If we've been reading prophecies like the famous Christmas one in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The king that the angel announces to Mary is just the one we've been waiting for. He's the justice we've been seeking. He's the salvation we've been anticipating. So far, so good. But then things quickly get surprising and confusing in the story we're looking at this morning in Luke 1. As we follow it, it begins to feel all wrong. First is the fact that the angel Gabriel finds Mary in Nazareth of all places. Not in Rome, the capital of the Western world. Not in great cities of culture and learning like Ephesus or Alexandria, which were the Londons and New Yorks and Los Angeleses of the day. Not even in Jerusalem, the religious capital of the Jews, where David's throne sat empty and where God's temple stood. No, Mary, the mother of the great promised king, was from nowhere important. From a small town out in the boondocks. And she wasn't even from a respectable small town. In the Gospel of John, when a guy named Nathaniel heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, and he lived nearby, so he would know. He lived from K- in Cana, which was not too many miles away. His immediate reaction was, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You see, not only was Nazareth nowheresville, not only did it have a reputation for being on the wrong side of the tracks, but it was in Galilee, which was often called Galilee of the Gentiles. It is in that great uh, prophecy in Isaiah 9 that I re- read another part of earlier. Galilee of the Gentiles was a derogatory term because you see lots of pagan, unclean Gentiles lived in Galilee, so much so that it got this reputation. In fact, one of the Herods who was um, a collaborator with the wicked Romans was building their capital in Galilee just several miles away from Nazareth in a place called Sepphoris, full of pagan temples and all things Roman galilee of the gentiles from a a jewish perspective galilee was like sin city a sleazy place full of the wrong kind of people that's where the angel finds mary second mary who is the center of this story in luke one is likely a teenage girl based on the age that most jewish girls got married at that time in that culture Now, I realize it's inexcusably sexist, but this was the mentality of people back then. As far as they were concerned, males were better and more important than females. Men held property. Men had status. Men had legal rights and standing. Meanwhile, single women were the property of their fathers until they got married and became the property of their husbands. And young women, or sorry, young people in general, were considered of little value because it was old people who had all the experience and all the wisdom. An older woman in that culture at least had status and honor through her husband often. Um, And if, if she was blessed to be a mother, through her role as a mother. But Mary at this point is a nobody. In the eyes of her culture, she's just a child waiting to become somebody. She has nothing to offer except to help her mom fetch firewood or water and to cook the lentils. So in that culture, what everyone would want to know is, why is the angel Gabriel even talking to Mary? He should be talking to her father. Third surprising thing, Luke just highlights further what I've been saying by telling us nothing about Mary's family or pedigree. In that culture, if Luke wanted us to think Mary was a somebody despite her hometown and despite her gender and her age, he at least would have told us what tribe she was from and who her father was. After all, Luke tells us those things about the other major characters in the story so far. If you go back and you read Luke 1, you meet Elizabeth, who we're told is a descendant of Aaron, a priestly lineage. And we're told that Elizabeth is righteous. She keeps the law blamelessly, as does her husband. We also meet her husband, Zachariah, who we're also told is a descendant of Aaron, a priest from the division of Abijah. All this may not mean much to us, but for people back then, this was serious pedigree. It shows that these people were important and that we were to think of them as important. Then we meet Joseph, to whom Mary will one day be married. We learn that he's a descendant of David. He's got credentials too. He's from the royal family, the family from whom one day God's king would come. But we're told nothing about Mary. No background, no credentials. When the angel comes to her and greets her in Nazareth, she's just some girl. Now, the angel does call her highly favored, right? And so we may assume that Mary is really holy if God favors her. But notice the story doesn't say this. It doesn't tell us why God favors Mary. It gives us no reason, no qualifications. God just loves Mary, favors her, it seems, for no reason that's given. And so let's be careful not to import our later religious morality into the story and assume if God favors Mary, it must be because she's a really godly person. To do this is to forget story after story in the Bible where God favors people not because they deserve it, but despite the fact that they deserve it. Isn't that the point of the gospel? So we don't know why God favors her. We're not told. Then fourth, Mary is a virgin. She's unqualified to do the one thing she's being called to do, to give birth to the great king. Mary can't. Because it takes two to make a baby, and she's single. She's a virgin. That's what she finally, incredulously points out to the angel. How can this be, since I'm a virgin? Mary has no ability. She is completely unqualified to do the one thing God is calling her to do. So stepping back now. Do you see the tensions and the contrast in this passage that I'm trying to bring out here? On the one hand, Mary will give birth to a king who will be great, who will be son of the Most High, who will sit on the throne of David and rule over God's people forever. But on the other hand, who is Mary? Into what sort of family and people will this king be born? From Nazareth. Teenage girl, no credentials, and a virgin. If this was today, this would be like God showing up to bring salvation to the world in a small village in the developing world. I'm not even going to tell you the name of the village because you wouldn't recognize it if I told it to you. To a young adolescent who's been poorly educated, who still lives with their parents fetching water and mixing grain mush and has no Twitter account. That's the sort of way God shows up when Gabriel appears to Mary in Nazareth. Can you feel the tension here in this picture? Once again, God is mysterious. Once again, God is surprising and baffling. We've been waiting so long for God to bring justice, for God to bring salvation, for God to raise up a great king to make all things right. And now when it comes, it's all wrong. This kingdom is not great, not powerful, not sophisticated, not qualified by any of the measures we use for those things. And yet this is how God works, right? I once heard someone say, weakness is the address God shows up at. So in conclusion, if all of this is true, if this is how God works, what can we expect the salvation and the justice we're waiting for to look like? Should we expect it to show up in an election result? Should we expect it to show up in a stock market rally? Or should we expect it to show up by being lived out and incarnated in places like where Mary was from? And in people like Mary was. In the humble lives and unassuming communities of those who follow Mary's son. let's not forget amidst all the tinsel and the trimmings that at Christmas we celebrate a royal surprise. The long-awaited coming of a great and powerful king who comes to bring justice and salvation, but whose coming just leads to more waiting and more mystery and more surprise. And so we continue to live by faith, as God's people always have. And we continue to live with mysteries and questions as we try to live out ourselves the way of this king, the way of justice, a justice which comes in humility. Even if we don't fully see that justice, we don't fully see peace on earth, don't fully see salvation in this world yet until he comes again. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would continue to catch us up in the mystery of who you are. That you would wash aside some of our certainties, which are based more maybe on our own intellect or our own pride of what we think we know, or based on the boxes that we have fit you into. And may we be astounded afresh at the mystery and surprise of who you are and how you are in the world with us now. And I pray that you would open us up to the turning upside down of this world, which your son brought about. That we may be like your son and that we may be close to the people who your son was close to when he came.